Welcome to What's Korean Cinema 27 on Declaration of Idiots. On this episode, we go back to this 1983 movie directed by Lee Jang-ho, and it's probably the most experimental film we've covered on the show. So much so that it's hard to intro it properly. So I guess prepare for a discussion of a silly little art film that has more to say than just that. How's that, Paul Quinn of Hang On Cellulite? I think that. Good evening, everyone, by the way. I think you've pretty much hit the nail on the head there. And I'm hoping to prove as we go through that my suggesting that we do Declaration of Idiot was not madness on my part, or not wholly madness on my part. Anyway. There's always madness involved somewhere. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I guess. It, uh, it, and that isn't necessarily dismissive, what I just said, that it's a silly little art film that has more than to say than just that, because I think it does. I'm just not 100% sure what it is. I watched, but uh, um, you're here to sort of f- fill in some blanks, I think. And uh, at the end of the episode, I'll be a transformed man. <laughs> Don't go that far. <laughs> I'll hate it even more. No, I didn't hate it. But, uh, anyway, we'll, we'll get to it uh, r- rather than being uh, cheeky and uh, not letting you listeners in on the action here. We're going to get to it. But uh, first of all, this is an I'm going to be, by the way, good evening for me. Uh, but uh, we are uh, What's Korean Cinema, the duo that does What's Korean Cinema on the Podcast on Fire network. Our website is podcastonfire.com, where you'll find this show on uh, vintage and a little bit more modern Korean cinema, as well as shows on Hong Kong, Japanese, Sleazy, Ninja Cinema, and we even do audio commentaries even now and again, as well as post uh, bonus episodes exclusively to the website. Email us if you have any questions or feedback, podcastonfire at googlemail.com. Com, uh, where you have some feedback on this particular episode or the movie in question, Declaration of Idiot, let us know and uh, we're, we're happy to read, reply or even read out on the show. Follow us on social media. On our website there's handy buttons available to our Facebook presence uh, that will lead you to our page. So if you leave a like in support, we would very much appreciate that. And if you type in Podcast on Fire Network, you'll find the discussion group as well where we discuss but also post show updates uh, in general so uh, join the very uh, well-behaved online community which is certainly you know why we're well-behaved in general it's because what we do is verging on more specialized it doesn't strike up this sort of fever this frantic feverish sort of fandom which leads to shitty fandom agreed agreed we were surrounded by good people one, but uh, I think uh, even if we really, uh, when releasing a, a a show on the likes of Memories of Murder, it doesn't make the sort of wolves come out of the woodwork and start totally, uh, totally. And start uh, you know peeing on opinions and stuff. So uh, well done everybody for being that way. You're all good men and women. And uh, if you click another button, that will lead you to our Twitter feed, our Twitter page. You also have uh, the iTunes button that will lead you to our feed. And uh, if you are an iTunes user, we would love for you to be a subscriber. You can also leave a star rating or even a written comment if you feel like you have something to say about the show or the network in general. And finally, click the Stitcher radio button to stream us on their website. Or you can also do so by down by downloading applications available on the Apple App Store and Google Play. So you got the podcast on Fire Network on the go, including What's Korean Cinema. Now, write about mainly Hong Kong and Taiwanese uh, movies of a variety of uh, genres, mainly uh, tinted towards uh, exploitation and uh, sort of uh, specific Taiwanese eras, if you will. Uh, but uh, there's a variety of options uh, and uh, movies reviewed over there. So, goodreviews.com. I video review at sleazykvideo.com and my Twitter handle with my nonsense is at so good reviews. 
and Paul Quinn, who's uh, catching his uh, breath now after a uh, probably fairly hectic time attending the London Korean Film Festival. And I think you did some behind-the-scenes work as well, or am I mixing it up with uh, some other endeavor of yours? Pretty much hit, hit the nail on the head. The watching of films and traveling left and right around London was the physical side, which was knackering, obviously. But on top of that, I did some writing for the festival, for the brochure and for the, their website. And it's always, you know, 300 things at once and you end up putting one thing aside. And I'm a bloke. I can't multitask. I can only do one thing at a time. It's a miracle that I can even speak, by the way, because, uh, you, you know, it's a second language and I'm producing at the same time. So it's a miracle I can even do this because I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of the same. Uh, so how many movies did you have lined up for to, to attend and how many did you attend in the end? I mean, uh, are you talking like you wanted to see 30 movies or? I, I essentially sent them a thing. They asked which ones you want to see in advance sort of thing. So I sent them about 15 and I went to about 12. One good thing, they, they did go through a lot of older films, which which I think is cool because people should be forced to watch them. Uh, a fair amount of rewatches, therefore, for you? For those, I sort of didn't sign in. I just, it, it made life slightly easier because I'd already reviewed them. I could just go, it's playing tonight, here's the review. And it looked like I was doing stuff when it was actually sitting in a coffee shop thinking, I'm knackered, I want to go home. Hey, one thing, one movie we should do, uh, really, because um, even I know of it, and you know I don't follow the output as it comes out, and, and, it lead, and, and, and if it's this discussion whether we keep this in the editing or not, but um, uh, so I'll ask, didn't Train to Busan play at the LKFF, or does it have its own cinema run, right, or had? It's on a cinema run at this point in time, and it's, it's sort of moving to video on demand as well. Fair enough. It's it's strong on its own, I suppose. Uh, it doesn't need to have a festival uh, in its sails, I suppose. But we 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 should certainly do that. It was my point because uh, I get the vibe that Train to Busan is commercial spectacle that's very that's very likable, even if it doesn't set the world on fire in terms of this as a revolutionary art. But to manage to get people to, and I sort of don't trust that either because people adore zombie. TV shows and movies in their current form, and I've watched some of that, and it's not to my personal liking. But it mm. seems like even uh, old school fans, you know, Romero fans, have sort of uh, been taken aback by Train to Busan that it's a cool ride. You know, even if it isn't hardcore horror necessarily, I heard it isn't that gory, but it's a cool ride. From my point of view, it was ludicrously entertaining. It's just so much fun from start to finish, and I'm not a big zombie horror fan you know i'm really not they're okay they're watchable it was the most enjoyment i've had in terms of that in a long time and i mean the the, the reviews that you've sort of seen from other people have sort of been quite polarized you, they, people either love it or they they're like well it's just a zombie movie there's nothing oh, new. Well, well that's that, that's just cynicism creeping in for the sake of it like it's okay to like something it's okay to be a kid about these things and think something is cool totally totally Maybe some people should like, watch certain movies and like t- take off their critics' hat and just watch movies so- sometimes. Like because they're, they're the kid can come out. Like when when you strip work from the equation and creativity, then 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 the perception of movies might change sometimes. Totally. I mean, my my thought on it was I enjoyed it so much because I knew what it was when I was going into it. It was a zombie movie, you know. And and some critics who shall remain nameless sort of 
you almost feel that they went in expecting war and peace when it wasn't this huge, expansive, deep thing. They they were just like, well... It's, because it's it could have movie. been four hours long being a Korean movie. Oh, so. totally, totally. <laughs> oh, I, think it's been, I think it's been very interesting that, that people have mostly loved it and the odd ones have just been a little bit bitter when I don't think they have any right to be. It's a zombie movie. It's fun. That's what cinema is. You go and enjoy yourself. Absolutely. Well, well I was thinking like for, for the future because obviously it's gonna hit disc and uh, it's uh, animated prequel as is either already on disc or it's gonna follow in the wake of it because you you can connect Train to Busan with Soul Station. Totally. Totally. So I, I in the future I think we should definitely cover at least one of them uh, or maybe uh, maybe two just to sort of uh, see how the stories connect in the different ways they were made. I'm very into that. Uh, but uh, that's for the future. For now, we're going to uh, dedicate this episode to Declaration of Idiot from 1983, and uh, I'll give you a rundown of what's to come, because uh, we have a few sections uh, coming up, and uh, each section in the show is um, uh, noted with a timestamp in the show post on the website. Uh, so we start with some production background on Declaration of, I- of Idiot, and then we talk its director, Lee Jung-ho, and then conclude by reviewing this um, sort of unique little film that sort of took me by surprise which is good i i didn't go in knowing anything of it like i didn't like scan it to see what is it super depressing is it a drama blah blah like, um, with with the kofa films that we watch on kofa they, it's like zero percent perception of what's going on i just trust your choices and your judgment right of all the film the old films we've looked at on you know your podcasts i was most interested to see what you thought of this you know the way you messaged me after you watched it because it's a lot was... of profanity for some reason but maybe not to... <laughs> that, that that doesn't say anything about my opinion just yet <laughs> i was dying to hear what your thoughts on it were more than anything else because i know it's so off the wall and you know i was sort of expecting you to say why why are we doing this we'll, we'll get to a short opinions because i haven't sort of uh uh showed it yet uh i mean it's it i, I don't i don't hate it but uh we'll, we'll we'll see if i can even sort of verbalize it because uh that was the challenge like okay i've got these notes what do i do with them <laughs> it's uh, sort of confusing it's a fair point yeah so but we'll get into it uh, declaration of idiot from 1983 and a plot from i, I think it's from kofa i'm sorry uh, i i i got this from you so i think it's from kofa yeah, it is. Okay, cool. And their website, that is. So, here we go. Dong Chul, played by Kim Myung Kon, had been a pickpocket, beggar, pimp, etc. He is accustomed to the dark life of crime. And by the way, if this is very choppy, uh, this plot is actually feeds into the movie. It sort of makes sense that the plot is choppy uh, and ch- choppily written. One day, Dong Chul meets Yuk Diok, played by Lee Hae Seong. It's a taxi driver. While trying to kidnap the fake college student... Hi, Hai Young, Young, played by Lee Bohi. Dong Chul, the idiot, and the taxi driver find out that uh, she is a prostitute. Uh, they do her errands and get fed, barely making it in the process. And uh, the two uh, get thrown out after fighting with a customer at one point. Uh, the fake college student goes with Dong Chul and uh, Yuk Diok to enjoy themselves at a beach resort. Uh, Dong Chul falls in love with her, and afterwards she gets a hike. Uh, work at a high-class restaurant in Seoul, and we'll stop it right there. Because this choppy plot, as I, as I said, will make sense once you hear the podcast, or better yet, watch the movie. This is not traditional movie-making in terms of uh, one full plot and one sort of uh, easy thread to follow. No, the director seemed to change tack 
each and every scene we experience. That's why this happens, then that happens, then they get to work, then they're starving, then they're happy, then they're sad. <laughs> so it's, it's very like a, a up and down, experimental filmmaking people. But anyway, let's, let's talk some background and uh, Paul is going to help us fill us in uh, uh, in, an, in terms of their context and what have you. And as the Korean Film Archive page um, says of a Declaration of Idiot, it's a social critique and commentary about 1980s Korean society with a comedic and satirical touch. Less of a gritty, realistic picture and more leaning to towards imaginative, uh, with a focus on depicting the atmosphere under military regime, which is sort of something I didn't pick up on, but I know it's a, uh, a comedic and satirical movie, definitely. But can you fill us in a little in terms of its main commentary and how director Lee Jung-ho decided to depict this and I guess why? I mean, g- give the listeners a little taste of what film to expect. I mean, is it hard-hitting? Is it just pure entertainment but quite sharp in its in its critique because the opening in itself is um, as described you know seems to set the tone because there's a suicide uh, someone jumps from a building a body hits the ground followed by a roar of applause like <coughs> or like yay from a sports stadium so so someone is like in a wicked audiovisual mood already at the beginning so uh, but uh, let, let's uh, let's uh, track back to, uh, to to the main question so uh, the floor is yours when you look at Declaration of Idiot, it's impossible to see it as a worthwhile film unless you're aware of what's going on behind the scenes. Over the years leading up to it, Lee Jang-ho had had major problems in getting films released, in getting the go-ahead to make this, that and the other, right from Good Windy Days through to The Man With Three Coffins. He, he had a nightmare. His whole problem was that under the military regime, censorship was killing Korean cinema. And he, at this stage of making Declaration of Idiot, had actually decided that he was going to leave filmmaking. He wanted to make a film that would destroy his career. He wanted to make a terrible film that just was patchy, was bouncy, had loads of weird things that had never been done before just because he figured they wouldn't work and people would just go, get out. And that's where Declaration of Idiot eventually came from. What he didn't realize was that when it was released, critics raved about it. Audiences loved it. It was hugely successful. Was it an audience favorite as well? Because yeah, it was huge. It, you don't sort of give audiences this out of the blue and, and expect the lottery ticket to be you know, the winning ticket. That, that, that's rather amazing. I mean, it's, it's unbelievably so. You know, he, I actually interviewed him last week um obviously knowing i was doing this i started talking about declaration of idiot and he still cannot understand why the film was so successful he was deliberately trying to destroy his career <laughs> did, did that play therefore uh, uh, at the lkff or did they bring him over for a retrospective of other movies of his they basically brought him over for a retrospective of i think four of his other films that were much more they're they're all quite vague, I guess. They're all quite surreal in their own way, but they're more linear, more dialogue driven, more normal. I think the LKFF. It was Doctor Mark Morris that chose the films. I think he, like Lee Chang Ho, would have sort of thought if we play Declaration of Idiot, some people who are into Korean cinema will sit and go, hmm, and some will actually just walk out of the cinema because it's just weird. 
this is polarizing stuff it should be not a not a zombie like not not on a level of the zombie movie we talked up here but like didn't it didn't it go in with a clear train of thought like, i, I want to send this up or i want to critique this was that evident because he, he didn't go in and make a random movie there there must have been something in him that says okay i want to say this even though i don't want anyone to like it well i mean essentially if this was originally going to be a sequel to a film called children of darkness part one he was refused he, he submitted a script and it was refused and refused and refused and i honestly believe that he took the themes that he wanted and wrapped them up in something that is almost so farcical that the censors let it go and when you when you look in underneath this seemingly random scenes and slapstick and silent movie sort of deal you know you, you see a lot of social critique going on every time the main characters are happy or eating loads of food you've got modern 80s music every time they're being beaten up or they're they're having a rough time or they're losing everything. It's traditional music. And it's sort of it it constantly goes modernization is false. Modernization is everybody appearing to be happy, where in fact it's traditionalism that's dying. That was his whole thing from my perspective. Was this something he was known for uh, as a loud critical voice of society, or was it this movie that brought out concern and even anger? From the very start of his career, he was vocal about critiques. His first big outwardly Korean society is wrong, this is bad, modernization and capitalism are terrible, was a film called Good Windy Days, which was a huge success in the box office, as most of his films were. And from that point on, through... Declaration of Idiot through The Man with Three Coffins, his whole thing was, I am going to take this society down. This is bad. This is bad. And it was all down to the military regime that censored his work. That's He was a bitter, bitter man. And you can tell how bitter, how cynical and how pissed off he was when you actually look at what he did with Declaration of Idiot. I mean, it's completely off the wall. And it's so, it's amazing too. I mean, this never really came out in the, in, in the research. It just as I'm listening to you now, it's amazing that you'd think cinema would be treated as pure escapism. But yet, I mean, we were talking this internal Korean audience, granted, but yet they went to see this movie. Not like, we don't know anything about it. Oh my god, it's so, it's they, they're critiquing everything. We can't take this. And then tell and then they tell their friends to not see it, and then it flops. But yeah, yeah. for some reason, this was this was not like too much of a reminder of reality to go watch, to, to experience in cinematic forms. It's rather amazing that such a bitterness and cynicism and darkness maybe could be a stepping stones towards box office gold. I, I, I rewatched it a couple of days ago and I just, I still sit and think people really wanted to see this. And I guess it would, at that time, nothing like this had ever appeared. You know, Korean cinema was... Still very much, even though we were in the 80s, it was still very much set up like the classic 60s movies, you know, overacting, very static shots. It's almost like people were going, wow, this is so new. This is so different. It's therefore great. I can't turn away. I must watch. (laughs) Kind of. And I mean, even, you know, it is quite farcical. And at times, I'm sure you, as well as 
I when when I rewatched it thought, yeah, mm, but I was never bored, and right through to the end, I was I was happy to sit there, even though it is just nuts. It's um it's almost in skit form, uh, as we'll get to, like uh, or little vignettes, uh, if you will. But uh, you 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 talked of his like visual expression and his cinematic expression for this movie, Declaration of Idiot. But it sounds like this was his own choice at the time. Like, did any other filmmaker follow in his footsteps? Like, ooh, this was successful. Let's try and express our voices with off the wall cinema. Or was he on on his little own island? At the time, he was very much on his own. Nobody, nobody had done anything like this before. After he did this and the Man with Three Coffins, whatever, which has got some, it's more linear, but it's got some really surreal things in it. You know, one one character plays three parts, and it speaks about reincarnation, even though they couldn't have been reincarnated because they're at the same time frame. You know, it's all really surreal stuff. The two directors that he ended up forming a partnership with sort of took a leaf out of his book and did their own more normal version of aspects of Declaration of Idiot. So he sort of started to change Korean cinema. And after Declaration of Idiot, when he even when he went more commercial, Korean cinema had changed because of what he did. It you know, he he brought it towards the new Korean cinema wave, if you like, you know, he was he was at the forefront, and Declaration of Idiot is certainly part of that, even though it's more experimental than perhaps you would expect it to be. Yeah, the only eighties dips I've had are have been for the show, and I mean, it's uh, they're contrasting efforts. Like we will watch Madame Ema, which is a little bit of that, you know, the melodramatically act did move, you know, woe is me, and uh, that's all st- stage acting kind of thrashing about the place. I'm so sad, and I must lean against the wall to show I'm sad. And and then you have Chilso and Manso, which is very like, st- straightforward and realistic yeah. and uh, things like that. You were talking of this uh, path from script to screen that, that required, at least at that time, maybe that changed that approval process, but uh, it did require approval. Has the process and that practice of having the script and the production approved by by the government changed through the years? Uh, essentially, is this an age-old practice by now, the the thing that Lee Jang-ho went through, uh, making declaration of idiot? This whole submitting scripts for, you know, censors to decide whether you can make a movie or not started at the end of the sort of 60s and into the 70s with when the military dictatorship sort of took over and it became more and more severe right through the Park Chung-hee regime of the 70s, right through to, I think, 79, he was assassinated, and through to his successor. It carried on right through the 90s with President Kim Young-sam and gradually sort of eased. So it was really only when the new Korean cinema wave was allowed to begin when they stopped it. You wouldn't be aware that all those Korean wave films of the late 80s and 90s had to be submitted, but they did. It was constant, and it was all because of the government, and it's essentially why Lee Chang-ho hated what the government was doing to cinema. Um, And it was his constant, constant thing for those years. He was just continually saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. I hate Korean society. I hate 
the military regime. I hate the government in whatever way he could. So, you know, that submitting of things lasted right through to sort of mid-90s, which, if you're not aware of it, it's just shocking. That's modern times, for heaven's sake. Yeah, exactly. To us it is. For kids it's old. For, for us it is modern times indeed. Speaking of that, again, that, that difficulty, that uh, declaration of it, it had making it from script to screen uh, uh, to, to repeat a little bit about uh, what Paul said. It was indeed uh, the, the intent was to make a sequel to uh, Lee's own movie, Children of Darkness, part one. But the script for the proposed part two was deemed too dark and uh, too intent, to quote, uh, too intent on exposing the darker aspect of society. I mean, you know, at least we're upfront about that. This is what we don't like, <laughs> you know, rather than like do it better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They could have done, done that and be very immature about it. But he went back to the drawing board to revise. He tried out 20 different titles that were rejected, but then arrived at the idea of, okay, let's not make a sequel then. And let's use a two-point title, at least in English, uh, uh, Declaration of Idiot. Is it the same in Korean? Do you know that? Specific titles, I guess, Declaration of Fools. So it's the same, th- it's the same thing, really. You know, it, it's it's not a great piece of, like, essay about this whole how he got it approved but reading about it it seems like they approved it based on one of the many title changes because i'm yeah. I'm sure he was still hell-bent on making some kind of controversial content and ang- angry content but for some reason after like the tw- for, for, for the sake of argument the 21st title is what did it <laughs> you know declaration of fools declaration of idiots so it, it it really sounds to me like uh uh, no, come up with a new title. Do you want to screw, read the script? Nah. It, it's, it sounds a little bit like that too, even though they, they did say that they thought it was too dark. But the, uh, the, the process sounds so complex that it becomes a little daft reading about it. Like, really? Did it, all it took was a title change. Okay. Totally, totally. I, I mean, from what I can gather from, I haven't mentioned it to him in general. I mean, he's very, he's very vague in general when he's talking about, stuff way back um i guess because it was so intense and it was you know time after time after time from what i can gather children of darkness was essentially about a prostitute she was the the sole focus she loses her child another prostitute dies in childbirth the girl takes the child tries to leave and and live a normal life the government come in and say because she's single and she was a prostitute she can't have the kid they take the kid away and she becomes a prostitute again. It's sort of that vicious circle because of what the government's doing. It's going to mess us all up. That was the sort of thing. And he was taking the second part as a continuation of that prostitute story. That's what got turned down, first of all. He then changed it to an idea of a prostitute in Declaration of Idiot with two other characters where she was only a, a supporting role, I guess. She's one of, one of three. And at that point, I think they were then saying, well, we don't like the title, so refuse, refuse, refuse. I think the title change came after he'd already made a change that would have made it okay in general terms. Children of Darkness, it does sound even more darker and confrontational based on Declaration of Edith. I mean, it sounds like a, a regular narrative film, or is, it, or is it experimental, as a matter of fact? Very much more what you would expect from classic Korean cinema that's sort of quite cutting. How he got away with it when he couldn't get away with the sequel, I can only assume that he took it to a level that they just were no longer okay with. And I mean, censorship 
in the interim had got slightly stricter anyway. But yeah, Children of Darkness is pretty dark and much more what you would expect. And uh, let's talk a little bit more specifically about uh, the the career notes on uh, Lee Jung-ho. Any cinema shouldn't have merely a handful of directors that are significant. So yes, he's another Korean director that is uh, quoted as being very significant and contributing very significant uh, cinema, you know, mainly in the 70s and 80s. So we've again focused on social relevance. And as Paul established, uh, this formula randomly unexpectedly the audience response was very uh was very uh positive even the canon post this uh declaration of idiot where he started to make more commercial movies were the audiences still with him you think yeah pretty much he, he's had almost a charmed life as a director most of his films have been well received regardless of how off the wall they they are how, how sexual they became later on in the 80s which will talk a little bit as about as we go through he just he hit that reputation where he was talking about what people actually wanted to hear and i think that's why his his social critique was actually what people were thinking and seeing his films was almost them them seeing their own thoughts on the screen he you know before he became a director as many do he worked as an assistant director to flower in hell and pulgasari director shin sang ok or simon sheen if you will got his uh got his filmmaking bug as opposed there and experience and there but he, he eventually made his debut as director and made a huge impact uh apparently with uh heavenly homecoming to stars and uh huge impact in his debut movie and and i mean and it sounds like he was both impact critically and uh, in terms of box office. Very much. And again, most of his his biggest films, the ones that you'll find on the, the Coffee YouTube channel, challenge, uh, channel, his big stuff was all both critically acclaimed and was popular with audiences, probably more than almost any other director you could name. He uh, partnered eventually. He wasn't uh, merely his, uh, he d- didn't work for a c- company solely, so he partnered solely. So he partnered uh, with uh, two directors uh, forming the uh, production company Visual Age, and uh, those directors uh, were all, uh, all filmmaking profiles anyway uh, Ha Kil Jong and Kim Ho Seon. And uh, I always ask, because I'm curious, uh, who, who were these two partners and, and the sort of arena that Visual Age was playing in i mean did 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 that mean like true freedom as filmmaker or filmmakers forming their own company and the full freedom to sort of you know express themselves about oppression and hypocrisy and the upper class and things like that so so if we i have another question about if we stop right there who were these two and uh was visual age freedom in in a production company if you will if we look back at the films we've talked about from the 60s we always end up mentioning shin san oak kim ki young etc etc as the big names in terms of 70s and 80s korean cinema the big names are Lee chang ho ha kil jong and kim ho seon and they were the three that formed this visual age if you look at ha kil jong there's a an incredibly famous one of the best supposedly best korean films ever made as everybody seems to say about every Korean film these days, um, he made a film called March of Fools, which is probably his most famous work. And Kim Ho Seong made a film called Young Ya's Heydays about a disabled girl who finds happiness with another disabled person. And it was, you know, they were all constantly doing this 
marginalized people. Korean society is ignoring them, but they can be happy if they're just allowed to be who they are. That's rather sweet, actually. Totally, totally. The three of them were really, they, they were the big hitters of their time. Lee Chang-ho is certainly the most famous of the three, simply because he made more films and he was more critically well-received. But the other two are equally, equally as important. When they formed Visual Age, was there like an evidence of, okay, we got more freedom, we can do more now, no one's going to say no to us, so they still had to sort of tailor it after... Uh, censorship uh, military regime I suppose well when they formed it it was essentially to cut out one of the stages of their problems when they were making it for film companies film companies at that time because of the censorship were really scared of what they could do so a lot of things wouldn't get through that even if it had got through the censors if you know what I mean Mm -hmm. so in him setting up visual age it was the fact that once his script had been accepted by the censors, he could make whatever he wanted without having to then go to another lot and say, is it okay to do this? Um, So it was to give him as much freedom as he could within that sort of huge censorship. Once he'd got through one stage, that was the only stage he had to deal with. Do you remember any particular standouts with the visual age, uh, well, under the visual age uh, banner, uh, or uh, are some of them lost even by this point? Some are lost. There's a lot more still available than you would think. I've already mentioned Man, in terms of Lee Chang-ho, Man with Three Coffins, his later Between the Knees, which was the move into his sexual sort of films. Really? <laughs> I thought it was a children's movie. <laughs> well, there you go. What, sort of the title gives it away, doesn't it? He he really did move into that sort of deal. So even Yu Dong, which is a, a Joseon-era sexual farce drama they're the big ones from him from visual age in terms of the other directors as i say young jazz heydays and march of fools are both utterly stunning films and they're both on the coffee channel go check them out and uh, i i sort of note that even if it does have sexual content that the movies he sort of did to unwind i suppose uh, the commercial movies they uh, were like so between the knees and something called baseball team by uh, by by a director here of uh, Declaration of uh, Idiot, you know his movies were already successful. So that talking about like now he's making commercial movies, well, he kind of was, even though he didn't intend it to be like like that. But any personal standouts from this uh, lighter affair of his, if you will, post Declaration of Idiot, and and also did did the nineteen ninety five movie Declaration of Genius bring Lee back to? any territory of uh, of uh, Declaration of uh, Idiot or it's just a title similarity? I'll answer your last question first. Declaration of Genius is just a title similarity. He's back to a kind of normal filmmaking. It's an interesting story, but it's not as heavily socially critical as as most of his other films. It's just a cool title, I guess. In terms of his more commercial stuff, as I say, Dong, if I pronounce it correctly, um, the Joseon sexual drama and Between the Knees are incredible. Um, they're funny, they're witty, they're as sexual as they can be for the time, but not gratuitously. There's there's still a lot of nicely placed vases in certain scenes to hide modesty, I guess. In terms of him moving towards the sort of sexual things, by the by, when I spoke to him about it, he pointed out that 
the censorship issue had been so problematic for him that he moved into sexuality because it was more acceptable, which I find really, really surprising. You never know with Korean cinema. That's the thing that like yeah. uh, one era, like you can't do this. One era, yeah, show, show us balls on the screen. We don't care. Like that's acceptable. Like they, they, it's government ordered <laughs> to, to do this. It's so polarized from one regime to the next. So if you look at his career, moving from the really social critique through to sexuality was to have an easier time. And I would assume that things like, you know, his baseball team movie, the more commercial stuff was, again, just an an ability to make stuff without having to go through all the rigmarole. And as you look through his career, you can almost see where he's happy and where he's bitter. When he's bitter, it becomes really twisted critique. When he's happy, he goes into sex or he goes into commercial filmmaking then he gets annoyed again and goes back it it, it's it's almost you know a history of his psychosis as as you go through it's quite an interesting thing really but yeah between the knees the man with three coffins they would be my big highlights if you want to check out further things of his career between the knees is a gorgeous film with lots of michael jackson and like unlicensed stuff I'm, I'm assuming it was okay. It, it's a, it's the sexual awakening of, awakening of a girl, and her younger brother is just he's convinced he's Michael Jackson. So there's lots of moonwalking and stuff. It's just it's it's insane, but it's fun. Lee uh, is uh, still with us, obviously, because uh, Paul met met the man, and uh, he directed as late as uh, if my notes are correct, uh, 2014, a movie called God's Eye God's Eye View. Uh, so, any notes on that recent input, if it has uh, reached you in any uh, shape or form, subtitled shape or form? So, um, did you see that, for instance, the 2014 movie? I've seen it, and I'm not the biggest fan of it, shall I say. It's about a couple who are abducted in Europe somewhere, I think. It's okay. It has a lot of religious themes, and for a while, again his movies just show what's happened in his life for a while after the birth of his his child Lee Chang Ho became somewhat religious he stepped away from movies for a while and then came back with God's Eye View which is has got very religious themes and whatever since then he's gone back to being naughty Lee Chang Ho and he's he's currently trying to put together a script that'll be a version of the vagina monologues you almost feel that when you look at his career, you're looking at different people. You know, you're looking at a cynical man, you're looking at a happy man, you're looking at a religious man, and now you're looking at a naughty man. And that's okay. Like, just because you have religion in your life doesn't mean you can't venture into what you ventured into before. Uh, uh, so it seems like he's a free spirit based on that. Very much so. I think that that sums him up to the nth degree. He does what he feels at the time he feels it. And the Lee is a two-time Best Director winner at the Grand Bell Awards for A Fine Windy Day and Come Unto Down. And is reportedly uh, teaching as well as being on the board of directors for the Puchong International Fantastic Film Festival. Uh, let's uh, let's hear a little story of uh, how it was uh, meeting the man. I know you hinted at it, but uh, the floor is yours. What, what do you want to tell of the encounter last week? It was. I was deeply looking forward to it because I think he is very, very important. I was surprised at how little he actually wanted to talk about his films. You know, when you mention something specifically, 
you're almost pushing him to say stuff about it. I, I get the feeling that he makes his films, he, he states his what he's saying in them, that's his take. Go and watch his films if you want to know what he thinks. He was very interesting, but in a way that I didn't expect and, and much more unexpected than most other directors I've talked to. So very interesting guy who really just says, go and watch my films, which is a fair thing. Very much so. So it was like a five-minute interview, therefore. Like, watch the films. Here's my filmography. I printed it from IMDb. We, we ran for about 25, 30 minutes. We covered a, an awful lot of ground. Again, it was just him almost talking about the censorship, about the military regime, about the current political situation in South Korea, more than his films themselves, you know, it, they're just his thoughts as he goes along. As we've said, he's very vocal on his opinions and that's what he wants to talk about. He wants to talk as a person rather than a director. That's cool. That's a rather unique, um, unique sort of stance and, uh, you know, it's not dismissive of the work. It's just that he's comfortable doing that. Cool that uh, he was uh, said yes to come to the UK and that... Uh, VLKFF thought this uh, deserved a retrospective um, slot in, a, in in the program. So um, we're at the movie review part, and uh, let me let me get the brief opinion out of the way because it, it's going to be hard. This I think to sort of I have my notes. I have two paragraphs of notes. I normally do, but it, it's going to be hard to sort of um, be coherent. I think so. This is my challenge. But anyway, my short opinion. I'm not sure what to say. But okay, I'm, I'm gonna say it anyway. Uh, the, the unusual almost artist structure and style left me sort of word or noteless, partly. But I'm sure Paul, you know, will continue to fill me in on some subtleties because this can't be random madness. You know, there seems to be a method to it and I can totally admire that. And it seems like a rule breaker. Clear, it's clear to me. And I was kind of proud of this note just because I'm immature. It's clear to me. And, and I sort of know now that he's working off fuck you fuel. And uh, the sort of dedication to style and the change of tone and humor and melodrama, that, that insane switch between each of those moods and the episodic nature of the film, it makes for compelling cinema even if I didn't get the subtleties of it. But the, the, there is a sort of um, silent movie style to it and this reckless nature to it that I appreciated very much. So no, no hate at all, I'm just not sure if I understood it all. But uh, that's certainly my fault and my ignorance, of course. So, uh, semi-short opinion. Now, now you can, you know, exhale, Paul. Uh, this is uh, I, I, I think I got some of it, and I appreciate it a fair amount, a fair amount of it. So, I'm pleased you accepted it as readily as you did because I really wasn't sure whether you would or not. And it's a movie you uh, that you almost could watch with no subtitles. There's not a whole lot of them, <laughs> but uh, but anyway, uh, what, uh, what do you want to say in short to to uh, to, uh, to get us going here? It's an important film in terms of what it says beneath the surface. There are a lot of things that happen that most people would be unaware of and will pass them by if they're outside Korean society. If you take, for example, the very first couple of scenes where a man jumps and commits suicide off the top of a building and then there's sort of the sound of a sports audience cheering as he falls that man is actually a film director committing suicide and it's played by Lee Chang Ho oh really <laughs> so that's him sort of saying at the very outset of the film my career's done I am going to die because of this film and the whole thing of the, the sports audience 
he's constantly saying the government touts sports as so important and shows a, a, a cohesive society and a, a progressive society while they're shooting cinema in the foot. And a lot of the little soundtracks really scream of, of what he's trying to say in terms of what's wrong with what the government's doing in society and cinema. Constantly you get traditional music overlaid with the sound of video games because video games were becoming an absolute obsession and the government was very happy for people to become obsessed with video games and, and capitalism, etc., etc. So there are a lot of things going on, whether you get them all or not, is is questionable because we're we're not Korean. We, exactly because we, we can sort of okay, let's zero in on what the characters are doing. Like, like, let, let's zero in on the story, which you sort of can, even though it's certainly you know very playful and very carefree, even from the get go. Because the uh, we, we got voiceover in the form of a chi- uh, not in the form of it's uh, spoken by a child, and there's uh, you know drawings of spaceships, and the story thoughts of our stupid character you know you know mm. this is don't chill he's super stupid so so the kid's not even drawing doing drawings of a hero or anything so we're looking towards idiots as inspirations okay that's an angle that's idiots in quotation marks and the idiot in question walks in a silly way so this is you know zaniness from the get-go you know he's walking down the street because that's what idiots do you know over emphasizing everything but it's you, you, you all tilt your head like hmm all right that's that's okay you know thrill me let, yeah. let, let's see where this goes and uh he sort of is either having fun or just doesn't care how much he's playing with the media because indeed it's uh, peppered with you know atari style sound effects for for scenes uh, with uh, no dialogue and uh random events that doesn't seem to need to be accompanied by such sound effects and the, and the credits all written in crayon as well so it's 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 sort of you struggle a little bit to sort of okay what what's going on here like what what is like the jumper for instance you know his deal and what is the director saying about the fact that a filmmaker jumps and everybody cheers like is he is the filmmaker saying that well so to say intellectual people won because they're cheering for a for a filmmaker of a unique vision presumably dying or does he stand with the filmmaker? You, you know, and uh, he's, he lives. He he lives a little while after he's taken the fall. You know, uh, he manages to say something. So it's almost like, what the hell is this sort of zany cartoon doing here? Like uh, he 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 didn't survive that fall. Well, uh, you know, supposedly he died, but he, he managed to say a few things. And uh, I guess just focusing on the filmmaking, like is is this sort of like playground that he that he creates for himself? Like play with non-verbal narrative and sped up photography and almost documentary style widescreen photography and you know depicting our idiot as a pure pervert like is that all if you take yourself back to the first few and is that all like this is interesting or is it at any point frustrating what he's doing here like uh i think i think it's a bit of both I mean, from a from a non-Korean point of view, and I can only speak from obviously a non-Korean point of view. The problem with Declaration of Idiot isn't what he's trying to say or the way he says it. It's the fact that we've got something so off the wall that you spent so much time trying to figure the story itself and where it's going that you miss 
other subtleties. There's a scene uh, towards the end of the film where a load of well-to-do people in, you know, tuxes are all at a drinks party being served there, there, and lovely, you know, black tie sort of deal. And if you look on the wall of the thing, there's a, a huge pornographic picture. It's almost things like that where he's saying, you know, modern society, this whole we're all wonderful, upstanding people is all fake. It's all lies. But you've got to get to that through the story, which which isn't that easy. It's not, because that when we reach that part, the criticism is quite clear. Like, the upper class just does whatever it likes to those mm. that they can manipulate and what have you. But the movie is this dream and narrative because we literally placed in characters' dreams for a while, you know, that did, many of the events did not happen, you know, and it's sort of his uh, excuse to be random, I suppose, but uh, it, it, it is sort of qu- quirky and sort of dry and funny too, because our idiot character is sitting, you know, almost perversely looking at uh, presumably like what the plot said, the fake college student is sitting there watching her perversely eating her pasta. And he's like, he starts to conjure up favorable images in his head of uh, what's going on. So that's how sort of a perverse mind can work. (laughs) Totally. I mean, things like after he abducts her, he gets her on set on two chairs, you know, stretched out. And then he, he's up under her skirt with a, a, a wrench and you hear all the sounds of car mechanic stuff as he constantly tinkers up her skirt and pulls out a set of panties, followed by another set of panties and another set of panties. And you just, your head explodes. You're just like, you know, okay, we know she's a prostitute, but it sort of, it just defies categorization. It defies explanation. It's just, I can't help but think he just thought that would be cool. Let's put some weird automotive sounds as he tinkers about. And it's really like, it's not that when we get out of that fantasy and dream that there's a regular narrative waiting for us. It actually isn't. We we jump from dream to dream and a little bit into reality, but it's still very, you know, eclectic and wild and uh, almost depicting, you know, whoever's dream we're seeing on screen, like uh, in particular his, the idiots. It's a very frenzied mind we're seeing there on screen. Therefore, like the visuals represent that too and you know he is perverse he is you know he che- he, he like uses a mirror to check for ladies uh, panties as they pass him so he is like he is a perverted man and that scene with him uh, doing uh, auto repairs on her by but his after her panties obviously it plays into that but it's done in that way so you don't know really what to feel about this but it's sort of amusing and and all it might be about mental illness, you ask yourself, well, I'm not sure it is, because now he's stalking her, so it's not like it's not like he's uh, someone to uh, feel sorry for. Uh, but it is a dream, and all set to a very playful, silent era narrative, because for a good while, there's no dialogue, no subtitles at all. I think the first, the first word of dialogue is at about 38 minutes into the... the- film and the film's only an hour and a half long so you know you've got a full more than half an hour of no no dialogue whatsoever which is difficult enough to cope with because you just i constantly the first time i watched it just thought is this going to be completely dialogue free when is anybody ever going to speak 
And then when they do, it almost offsets you because you're so used to not having dialogue. Mm-hmm. But but I, I do dig that uh, playful silent era narrative and the, the style, though. And, and, and the absurd humor sort of reminded me of uh, the absurdist actual comedy of David Lynch. I'm not talking his mm. surreal stuff, his dark stuff, but David Lynch is a superb sort of comedic thinker. So some of his some of the stuff even in in Eraserhead, his debut, is yeah, yeah. almost perfect absurdism. They're, they're just sitting there eating the chickens at the table and the pe- people are just super smi- they're smiling and they're super psyched and yes, we bought these chickens. Let's have dinner now. So I, I could connect to connect to that and uh but 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 I also realized that I I don't think I see the thread here. But the absurdism absurdism is carrying me quite nicely because those visuals and as acted, you know, in terms of performance, are, are sort of good fun for a while. There, there there's a scene where they're at a restaurant table and he's uh, he's not eating a pineapple, but he's eating the pineapple leaves. Probably part of the dream, but he's he's probably dreaming that this is now his girlfriend, you know, the fake college student, and she's pregnant, and she's got the schoolgirl uniform on, and then he hits her on the stomach. <laughs> he's uh, like he's the king of his dreams, and he's uh, a total bastard as as well. So it's like random sy- like synapses in his brain are kicking in, ju- just like they do in a, in a dream state. You know, I'm sure you have dreams where that where nothing makes sense. Yeah, it's just like, uh, your your mind sort of kicks in like da 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 da. This is now Paul's movie for the night, <laughs> you know, dream movie of the night. We're gonna take these random elements, and for a while it seems like it it is that, and that's I, I don't mean this in a dismissive way, but that is sort of decent entertainment though to ju- just see how far he goes with this random style with absurd comedy and uh, and I think that yeah I, I agree, and I think that's one of the biggest pulls of the film that you stick with it because you're actually just wanting to see how totally absurd he gets. But he isn't uh, afraid to play with darkness. I mean, uh, there's uh, there's exploitation elements here. I mean, there's, uh, there's an almost rape scene, if my memory is correct. And mm-hmm. uh, then after a while, they meet uh, women that are anything but helpless. They, you know, they, they meet almost pro- you know, proactive women and uh, sexual women. And uh, that seems to be too much for these two this duo to handle, you know, this male yeah. duo to handle. And then it sort of switches to the plight of the homeless. Oh, okay. It's still random. It's still kooky. Like, it's not by midway point stopping to be a regular narrative. I suppose you should admire that, um, that uh, changing tack so much and still get the attention of your audience to the degree it did. It's, uh, it, it, it is something to be, uh, to be admired. Uh, I, as, I, as I went through, I constantly got the feeling that the original story, whatever it was, that would have been Children of Darkness 2 or what became Declaration of Idiot, you almost got the feeling he took a story and then just sort of swapped the pages, tore bits up. I I know for a fact when he came to direct it, he went without the script that he'd got accepted. He just went for improvisational as it went through. That shows, I guess, but you get the feeling that he deliberately was just chopping and changing because he really just wanted to make a disgracefully bad film, which ended up not being disgracefully bad. And I think that says says quite a lot for his talent, regardless of how off the wall it is. And and to be able to maintain that energy, which he sort of does throughout these 90 minutes, is um, is to be admired too, because it, it, it's pretty draining. And I think making it and Very coming much. up with these uh, different 
tangents is something you have to sort of uh, have the energy for. On a technical level, it actually looks pretty damn good. It's as, you know, documentary in style as it is. In particular, now that it's in remastered form from the Korean film archive, I think it looks rather splendid. <laughs> the movie, the widescreen widescreen phyto- uh, photography, even though it does shoot the streets and shoots through people, and the the actors are not in the foreground, and nothing of this is conventional filmmaking. It looks rather splendid. The movie, I think, it looks vibrant. Oh, and much more if you can if if you were to compare it to films that had been but from other directors that had come just a few years later it is more vibrant it is more alive and that that sort of pushed korean cinema again into a more you know visuals are important we can make something really stylish regardless of what the content is so you know he he did an awful lot for korean cinema through a, a seemingly nuts film uh, some some highlights uh, uh, in terms of the again the sort of silent era narrative that I connected to the most uh, because w- when you think the characters are in crisis mode, things turn around quickly, super quickly. They're starving now. They're they're sort of waiters and they're errand boys and everything is hunky dory. He almost, I mean, I, I, maybe it's in there, maybe it's not, but I could sort of almost see a Laurel and Hardy influence in one of the sequences where. Our idiot is carrying these uh, multiple uh, pots or uh, ceramic containers, making sure he doesn't drop them. A lot of things happen that eventually makes them break. You think he's got a, got them and everything's hunky-dory at the end of the sequence, but no. I, I do find that funny because if anything, uh, you know, if I didn't know anything of the background, I could or if I were to make a determination, it's that someone is uh, trying to go back in time and make a modern silent era movie very much so and i think that screams out whether you think laurel and hardy or buster keaton or whatever they they really scream out of it simply because i think i agree with you i think those aspects are specifically there for that particular reason and and that surely must have provided some entertainment for the audience therefore if they didn't get get what was going on necessarily at all times at least some parts are very funny very much but but it continues to stay on this unlikely trio. It seems like now we're out of dream territory. They're trying to get by. Again, it, it doesn't use a lot of uh, dialogue for this, so it stays within that almost non-verbal, but a tiny bit verbal narrative where the trio trio gets broken up. You know, they think they have a good thing going, and she turns to safety. Uh, she turns to uh, where the sort of uh, lunch ticket is, or the money ticket is, or whatever. I, I guess this uh, back half of the movie is where the narrative as is at its most recognizable because it's uh, tropes, a uh, standard trope, you know, uh, a friendship that's about to be broken up and uh, threatened by turning to the easy choice, which in this case is the upper class. And we, we won't spoil the ending, but it, it's a rather distressing stretch for a while. Uh, that whole party scene is partly super boring, but then he does something really distressing and when you think it's super distressing he does something super silly <laughs> you know you remember the the scene where the guys save her and they jump in in their hero sort of underwear they're you know in, the, in their colorful like yeah. uh, tights or their colorful underwear and act like superheroes or vigilantes so you just i guess i now know that this was the movie he wanted to make he didn't slow down to actually do a melodrama here like yes this is distressing but look at those silly guys in their silly outfits trying to save her. Trying to... <laughs> so, okay, that's the movie I 
Concert is like that choice, but damn, was that distressing. That goes on for a long time, that slow motion mental pounding of her, you know, involving the alcohol and stuff. That's, that's tough stuff, man. Yeah, really, very much so. Do you think that's too much, though? Because you, you can te- you, you can sort of feel like, okay, the upper class is not being depicted in this uh, positive way. Like, uh, is that too much or that doesn't really matter? L- like, like, too much is not something you can even talk about when it comes to this movie because it's not uh, conventional. I, I think, it, personally, I think it's just distressing enough. That one scene, if you took the rest of the film and discarded it, and took that one scene that essentially says everything that Lee Chang Ho's trying to say about society, about the upper classes, about what the government has made Korea. So I think it has to be distressing. He's he's got to say that everything is so wrong that it's got that bad. It's not inconceivable though. Uh, how they act is not inconceivable. That's the thing. It's not surreal and cartoony and dreamy like. If anything, this is the more rooted part of the movie. I think even though it does go on and we got exploitation aspects by having her clothes torn, you know, bit by bit and things like that. I think to see them, you know, yeah. uh, you know, you can see her nipples through her clothes and things like that. So, gotta say, by the way, she looks spellbinding. You know, Libo, he, uh, ah. she looks like... Uh, I noticed her more... Oh, God, this is going to sound so dark, but I think I think she looked a bit like a young Gong Li, you know, the mainland actress Gong Li. Mm-hmm. But but that's not to say she doesn't come on the frame because I think she does. She looks spellbinding, and I hope she did some bigger movies where she became a breakout star. And this was not like I pray that she had a career. Do you know anything about her? I know a lot about Ebo He, who is still acting to this very day. When we originally set up these two podcasts, the two films we were going to talk about. The movie that you chose that we... I don't know whether you want to mention it yet, but... Yeah, um, we'll, we'll do that at the end of the show. Okay. The the movie that you chose has a huge female star who is currently riding the crest of a wave. And from my point of view, I wanted an important director having a film that had one of the biggest female stars of her time in comparison to that. In a super kooky film, to boot. In a super kooky film. I was either going to go with Imi Suk, um, who has been in Mulberry and has worked with E.J. Young for years and years, or Ebo He. And the reason I didn't go with Imi Suk was because the availability of a lot of her films, her older films, just isn't there. Whereas Ebo He was as big and loads of her films are available on the coffee channel. She just looks like a damn movie star, man. Like the camera just effing loves her. I mean, that, we, we come back to the fact that it is a very well shot film with the widescreen photography, the scope photography, and and it looks super vibrant. And uh, whoever the DOP was, uh, just absolutely, it's a showcase for her despite the movie being what it is. Totally, totally. And she does, in a silent film virtually, command every scene she's in. She's worked with Lee Chang-ho for numerous times. She was in the baseball team movie. She was in Between the Knees. She was in Uodong. Um, she was in The Man with Three Coffins. And since all those films, she's gone on to star in Le Grand Chef 2, which was a huge hit in 2010. She was in Sunny in 2011, which was a massive 
hit among Korean women because it was it was older middle-aged women regaining their youth. She's massive. You mentioned her name on the streets of Seoul. Everyone will know who she is. And when you look at her spellbinding look in Declaration of Idiot, you can see why she is she's stunning. She's she's she would actually make, stop you in your tracks. And that's good to hear because uh, it just looked. The, the appearance of her looks so good that I, do, I was just praying for that. That surely is a movie star now. Like that can't have been a random choice, you know. She, she's essentially, in terms of seventies and eighties, she was one of the three biggest Korean film stars, female stars that had ever lived. She was, she was massive, and it's good to see she's still working today. My, in my final notes, I, I mean, I, I suppose the narration towards the end and uh, the, the the sort of heartfelt end, in a way, uh, some of it is genuinely poignant if you look at sort of the friendship that's going on here, which was most of what I could focus on, again, not knowing the subtleties of the film. Uh, some of it feels uplifting as well, poignant and uplifting, but it's all spoken, pl- plain spoken and straight, you know, he's not in voiceover and what have you, it's not you know intellectual language and it's all and because it's voice over by a kid it's almost like a kid dropped the film and that may be i'm the theory here maybe connected to the fact that he did not want anyone to like this this was uh, made on fuck you fuel and there's a big fuck you to everybody and uh, let's see what you think of if i make a film that feels like a kid dropped the film again 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 like the crayon credits and the 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 the, vo- the voiceover by the kid if I'm right, I'm right. If I'm if I'm not, then I still feel that's a fairly strong little um, experiment. In... I, I think that's a hugely valid point. I almost got the feeling that Lee Chang Ho was saying, "Look at this terrible movie. It could have been made by a kid." But, but a kid with imagination, dude. Totally. Um, you know, and as we said, it was hugely successful, which surprised absolutely everybody. I think he was saying, "Fuck you, look." This is this is drivel. A kid could make it, and nobody will go and watch it. And he was just shocked when they did. Do you know if it, if the, it was nominated or Korea didn't have awards uh, back then? It didn't win any awards, but um, a few years ago, the Korean Film Archive put together a list of the 101 best Korean films ever made. And Declaration of Idiot is number nine. <laughs> and he is again like, shut up, shut up about the movie. I hate you all. I hate you all. Please hate my movie. <laughs> You've got a list of Korean films with, you know, memories of murder, the house made, phenomenal things. And right up number nine, Declaration of Idiot. When you watch it, you just think no one's ever going to choose that as one of the best Korean films ever made. But it shows what reception it got from from the industry, from critics, from audiences. I mean, I, f- I find it hard to recommend it, to be honest, because it's um, it's unusual. But if you if you if you simply want to watch movie movies and let it wa- let them wash over you, like no prep, no reading of from background, and 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 you're open to it, and by all means do it's a fairly f- swift movie again, ninety three minutes or or what have you. So, but but it's it's not this like slam dunk of course boom recommendation because it's important or like boom it's bad but important. It's it's just uh, some somewhat unique and. It's. I emphasize silly little art film. It's not uh, in this uh, brooding art film where everything means something and uh, you should feel it in your heart emotionally. No, it's a silly little art film that, uh, with emphasis on that, uh, at points in the movie. So, it's. A, it, I. I very much appreciate that I got a chance to uh, to see it. Uh, 
and did not expect it to be like this at all. So thank you for not even teasing me about like, hey, it's gonna be a it's gonna be a strange film. Can you just said uh, declaration of edit? Okay, I'll research that and I'll watch it. What the hell? That was the only way I figured I could get away with it because we've done a lot of podcasts on films that everybody knows we're gonna say this is incredible, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we did Memories of Murder recently and, and you know from the outset, I love it, you love it, and we're gonna go, this is great. I specifically wanted to choose something that would be a film that the likes of which no one, no fan of Korean cinema would ever have seen and something that maybe you wouldn't recommend or maybe you'd accept. It was just a different take, I guess. Well, certainly the the backstory is interesting and and there is the running time. Too like it, it, you know. Thank God it wasn't a 150 minute exercise of you know, like I would scream, you know, f you at the screen at that point. Like, come on, do you do you need? Is your canvas you need to be that big to say what you sort of are saying? I think. Yeah. Uh, so so good on him for actually being you know sound with uh, with the running time, but uh, it's not this interesting. Not sure I'm gonna watch it again though. It's it's uh, um, but but to have it in the sort of a film history brain or the you know, basic film history uh, uh, that's certainly I, uh, something I like to absorb though but uh, uh, okay that's the end of my notes uh, anything else you want to say? For anybody who's going to watch it I wouldn't necessarily recommend it as utter enjoyment for an hour and a half I'd recommend it in terms of as I say seeing Korean film that you the likes of which you've never seen before and will likely never see again if you do go and watch it, all I would say is your overall story, look at when the characters are happy and when they're sad, when they're in modern Korea, whether it's a dream or reality, when they're in the cities, they're unhappy, when they're at the beach, out of society, they're happy. I, I love that scene, by the way, I'm sorry, where they, where the guys put on this uh, stage performance at the, sta- at the mm. stage in, uh, on the beach and tried to cheer our college student up. I thought that was uh, rather uh, rather sweet and playful, actually. Uh, might have even been somewhat undercranked to sort of, to sort of emphasize the silent, the silent movie style. So that 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 was something to connect to, I think. But for me, that was that's the whole that's the whole story. Modern Korea will make you unhappy. Get away from the government. Get away from society, and you'll find happiness for a short period of time. That's your story regardless of how fractured it is. Very cool. Well, as for availability, uh, to repeat something we have mentioned every now and again in this discussion, uh, Declaration of Edit is available to watch for free, legally, and with subtitles on the Korean Film Archive YouTube channel. So again, the, the uh, it's even 720p HD, and it's uh, definitely a remastered, very clean print. And uh, I did find references to a Korean DVD not by Kofa but by SM Screen but those specs indicated no English subtitles and possibly even cropped to full frame mm. which would be a shame because it is a scope movie so a lot of cropping would uh, would take place yeah, Kofa did DVDs but uh, I don't think every movie on their channel had a prior DVD uh, and um, even if you do find their DVDs now they're rare and presumably very very expensive but yeah. they, they cared about certain of the movies they they had you know documentary extras and commentary extras sometimes even english subtitled you know in terms of extras which eh, never happens normally with uh korean dvds so uh, uh but uh, it seems like it's more economic to uh 
evolved their YouTube channel, which they certainly are because they are nowadays, you know, transferring them in HD, both 1080 and 720 HD. So, um, and, and they, they certainly look good. So next time, all things John D. Hyun. Yay! <laughs> we have already talked of My Sassy Girl, which I wasn't a great fan of. Uh, a movie that did not need to be 140 minutes long, but that's another discussion on episode 1 of What's Korean Cinema, nonetheless. So what else is there to discuss? Well, plenty, of course. There's a big career, big ongoing career, but we have zeroed in on, because I remember the movie back then, Paul has a huge beating heart for the movie, and I thought that that's enough reason to go venture into and discuss and review 2008's A Man Who Was Superman. That's as simple as, uh, as I'm gonna uh, announce it uh, right now. That's coming up next week for you all. So um, look forward to that. We uh, And th- th- there is some connection to these uh, movies, I suppose. Uh, talking female leads, and, you know, mental illness a little bit, you know. So there's some... Um, he, he, he isn't... Uh, he isn't uh, random with his, choi- with his choices. Uh, Paul Quinn, that is. Uh, he, uh, he looks to create a thread between the two weeks in a row episode episode onslaught of what's Korean cinema that you are getting. We kind of try. And if we're, if we're looking at a man who was Superman, I love it so much. I'm happy to find whatever threads I can to link it to anything. And so, uh, and it was my first time, uh, first time watching it. Uh, we talked of it earlier on Podcast on Fire as just uh, discussion. You know, uh, Mike Banner, I believe, mentioned that he really liked the movie, and uh, mm-hmm. the movie always stuck. Well, it didn't stick with me to the point where I picked it up, but it stuck when it was brought up. I was like, ah, that's something I should pursue. And oh wow, we can do it on the show. That's the reason to pursue it. Then. So, and uh, and thus I did. So, uh, we are going to do that uh, next week for you all. So stay tuned if you are interested. But uh, this has been What's Korean Cinema on the Podcast on Fire Network. We are available on podcastonfire.com along with all our other shows and bonus episodes. So make your choices over there based on preference. If you have any questions or feedback, uh, like, did you watch Declaration of Idiot? What do you think? Don't be afraid to let us know. Podcastonfire at googlemail.com. You can let us know on uh, social media as well. Any comment is welcome. Uh, there are handy, handy buttons leading to our Facebook and Twitter. There are there, There's also buttons to our iTunes feed and to our Stitcher radio presence. So uh, you can uh, stream us and uh, subscribe to us. I write about the Hong Kong movies and Taiwanese movies on SoGoodReviews.com. My video review at SlazyKVideo.com. And my Twitter handle is at SoGoodReviews. And uh, I didn't really let you plug it at the beginning of the show, Paul. So what is your site and where is it located? I shall do it now. Um, I run hangocelluloid.com, which is Korean films and interviews exclusively. You can find me, as I say, at hangocelluloid.com. I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangocelluloid. My Twitter is at hangocelluloid. Lee Chang-ho interview coming up as soon as I actually sit and transcribe it. But hopefully there'll be some stuff on there that you'll find of interest. You haven't reviewed this movie, though. I haven't reviewed this movie. Will you? Can you? <laughs> now, there's a, there's a tough There's call. a question. <laughs> it, might, it might be worth doing as a challenge in the future, maybe. Well, it's always going to be out there, so if you need to re-experience it, uh, you have it available to you. So at your fingertips, my friend. We are done for this episode. See you next week. For those of you who are, who are interested, uh, we are reviewing a man who was Superman. But in the meantime, this has been Kennedy and with me was Paul Quinn of Angle Celluloid. So say goodbye, buddy. See you later, guys. Mm-hmm.